Hey everyone, Chris here, and what you're about to listen to is an RH Gaiden, part of the content that is exclusive to our patrons over at Patreon. So if you want to hear more content like this, and you're just interested in supporting us in general, just head over to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash retrohangover, or you can find it at linktree slash retrohangover. That's linktr.ee slash retrohangover. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Retro Hangover, supported via Patreon by listeners like you. We'd especially like to thank patrons Lyle McCarns, Ashton Ruby, Randall Quiggle, Tony G, Stustle Smash the Milkman, Katie Quigg, Paul Romalo, Raging Demon, JC, Megan Caruso, Mass Keaton, Andrew Laguori, Ozzy Garcia, The Retro Vixen, Adam from The Good, The Bad, and The Backlog, Lunchbox, aka The Disgruntled Gamer, Disca Jenny E, Rick Firestone, Parallax Puddles, Soha, Dave Jackson, Keith Gasper, Eric Guess, Kayla Jackson, Nomad from The Retro Wildlands Podcast, Ash Event, Alan Bingham, Storm Beagle, Ryan Player One, Mike the Ref from Backbreaker Gaming, and B Ross from Super Garbage Day. Your continued engagements and generous donations are deeply appreciated. Welcome back to another episode of RH Guide, and this is going to be episode two. I'm going to try and just hammer some things down just because this is some some newer side content. And apparently I'm just going to make it so it can go in all sorts of uh, different directions as I try to find my words and can barely speak here, which is great. But for our second episode, I have a very special guest, and that guest today is someone who has been on our show before, but twice before, in fact. And by the time you're listening to this, probably three times. Uh, he is a dear friend of the show, a dear personal friend of mine. Everybody, welcome back, Seamus Patrick Burke. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, and there's a part of me that uh, wonders if you're going to sincerely regret this in a couple of minutes, because this was my idea, and even I'm not sure that this was a good idea <laughs> after 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 all of the research that I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll find out. I'm all about finding out if ideas are good or not. Yeah. As long as it could lead down some sort of strange rabbit hole. Let, let, let's see it. this Let's see this airplane to its mountainside collision. We're halfway there. Let's see if we can hit the mountain. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. All about it. So you might be wondering, I mean, you already saw the title of this. Uh, if you're looking at it, if you're looking at this, you're, you're one of our patrons. So thank you very much. And this is at all tiers. Uh, so once again, thank you very much for your contribu- uh, contributions every month. It really does help support the show. But yeah, we're going to be talking about Sonic Comics. And... I personally have never read a Sonic comic. Uh, I've I've seen the cartoon show back when I was a kid. And of course, I played the video games. But Seamus came up with this idea that he could talk about some of the absolutely batshit crazy storylines that were going on with Sonic comics. And I think just because this is kind of a show that can kind of go in any direction, this would be the appropriate place to do it. So 
what what are we talking about today, Seamus? First of all, before we really get into this, if you just want to plug yourself, just so people know, I know it's been on the previous episodes. I know it's been on now in the past, but hasn't been recorded as we're talking about this, our Sailor Moon episode. Where can they find you on the interwebs? Uh, every I'm going to be honest. Everything is really uh, nebulous right now because of um, the uh, pandemic that's been going on last year. Just like dealing with a bunch of stress and just kind of, you know, just trying to navigate all of this. And plus, I kind of realized that a lot of my output was very like reactive. I was always getting ready for a con or I was getting ready for some other kind of show. All the cons are canceled. So now I'm like, well, what do I do now? Shit. But um, if you guys want to follow me, just look me up at Gray Man Games on YouTube. And you can also follow me on Twitter. It is. Uh, S underscore P underscore Burke. You can uh, find me there. I posted some Castlevania art last night that I think Chris has seen, um, and that's really cool. Um, so I should I should probably talk about my connection to this. So um, growing up, I've been playing video games since I was three, and I was just one of those kids where I just wanted to absorb everything about every bit of video games around me. You know, I was drawing pictures of them all the time. I um, you know, was trying to look up uh, any kind of licensed material, toys, games, TV shows. And it didn't even matter if it was uh, games that I didn't uh, play regularly. Um, and, you know, one of those things was, of course, uh, cartoons, like you mentioned. And um, that will be coming up because uh, one of the weird things about the Sonic Archie comics that I'll state right off the bat is that they started production before both animated series um, you know, went to uh, went to air. Because if you remember, Sonic actually had two animated series in the 90s. You had um, The Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog, which aired on USA. It had kind of like a Roadrunner, Wile E. Coyote kind of tone. Um, it was like very lighthearted, very goofy. And then you had the Saturday morning one, which aired on ABC, which was much more serious, much more uh, dark and intense. Um, kind of had like a very Blade Runner kind of aesthetic, had a much bigger cast of characters. And that was the one with Princess Sally. That was the one with Princess Sally. Sally is going to be coming up a lot during this discussion. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Sally is, uh, she is the daughter of the former king that uh, was the king of the woodland animals um, in the forest, uh, King Acorn, because apparently there were squirrels. I didn't know Sally was supposed to be a squirrel for the longest time. But... Um, and uh, Robotnik has taken over the world. He's actually won, which I think is a really cool idea. And uh, Sonic has like this French, uh, you know, this French resistance group called the Freedom Fighters that live in a village out in the woods called Knothole uh, that not, that Robotnik does not know about. And uh, Princess Sally is the leader. Um, Sonic is like the field guy. He's like uh, the one who goes in and does the fighting. Sally is like the strategist. Um, and other cast members that they had was uh, Bunny Rabot, who... Um, had been halfway roboticized by Robotnik, so she has a robot l arm and robot legs, and she has a southern accent for some reason. Um, I don't know how that works. Be it, <laughs> because all rabbits do. Because all rabbits do. Uh, you, had do. you had Antoine, who was um, a former member of the Royal Guard, and he's like a cowardly Frenchman, uh, because aren't they all in cartoons? And... Um, <laughs> And uh, then you had Rotor the Walrus, uh, who was like the tech guy. Uh, you had Tails, who actually did not do much in the Saturday morning cartoon. He was he was just like kind of there. Like, it, it, like he was way more of an active participant in uh, the Adventures cartoon. He was like Sonic's like straight man or whatever. So did they actually have French accents? Yeah, li like you listen to Antoine and he's like, oh, my Princess Sally, I have no idea where we are supposed to go. We go home. Yes. <laughs> That's almost Italian. Uh, yeah, that I can't, I can't do the accent uh, as well. <laughs> Just, it sounds like Mario dropped into the wrong cartoon. Oh, I'm in the wrong cartoon. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. But, okay, so before we really move forward on, on that is, okay, so Sonic Spinball 
kind of tied into the video game angle. I know Sonic Spinball is based, that's based off the cartoon, right? It's based off that cartoon. It has some elements, um, and they did do a uh, adaptation of Sonic uh, Spinball in, I, it was really early. I think it was in like the first uh, 10 issues. Um, but it, but that one was pretty basic. You just had like, uh, you know, you had like the dragon that just kind of like showed up from the lava. You had the giant crab that you were supposed to avoid. You know, just, it was a, it was a fair adaptation. I mean, it's Sonic Pinball. You don't have like, you know, much story to work with right there. So you just have pinball shenanigans happen for like 12 pages and then you just kind of move on from the end of the story. Um, okay. But before we get too deep, I should probably, uh, rattle off some facts, um, about the comics just so we can kind of like establish a baseline. Cause I've got my notes in front of me right now. This is going to sound like I'm reading a book report, but, um, <clears throat> Okay. I'll interrupt as I feel fit. Yeah. Uh, the Sonic the Hedgehog Archie comics ran from July 1993 to December 2016 for a total of 290 issues. Combined with special spinoffs and one-off stories, the total came to 569 issues uh, in its totality. Stories would feature characters from both the Adventure Series on USA and the Saturday morning version overseen by writer Ben Hurst, who also worked on Sonic Underground and sadly passed away in 2010. The early issues were handled by writer Mike Gallagher and former Mad Magazine artist Dave Manick, featuring a lot of gag humor similar to the Adventure series. As the title went on, two major writers would trade back and forth on the style and tone, Ken Penders and Carl Bowlers. Both would leave around issue 160 due to dissatisfaction with Sega providing story materials and would be replaced by writer Ian Flynn for the remainder of the run. Sadly, due to lawsuits, which we'll get into, and due to the license expiring, there are no reprints available or digital versions sold online at this time. But if you want to read more on the history, there is a great Tumblr that I used as a resource called Thanks Ken Penders by author Bobby Schroeder, who's made it a point to archive reviews of each issue, as well as look at uh, Penders' poor writing of female characters through a post-feminist lens, which we will also get th get to. <laughs> so you said Ken, Ken Penders? Yeah, Ken Penders uh, took over like the um, second major uh, era of the comic. Um, he, you know, started off really, really early on with... Um, well, okay, so we should probably start from the beginning. So uh, you had uh, the first two writer and artist, um, Mike Gallagher and uh, Dave Manick, both used to work for Mad Magazine. And you read these early issues, um, and they kind of have like a very Mad Magazine tone. It's like very goofy, very lighthearted, even though it has like the very serious Sat AM characters. I mean, the first issue ends with like Princess Sally hitting Sonic in the face with a coconut cream pie. You know, it's like that level of uh, that level of humor. <clears throat> Right, just very juvenile, very much aimed towards the demographic. Very, very, very much aimed towards uh, aimed towards little kids. And something I should also mention here, and uh, maybe you remember this, but you got to understand that in the early '90s, um, most creators had no idea what to do with video game characters because a lot of video games, not only were they new, they didn't really have a lot of story. So. One thing that they would do is that they would just do like endless uh, parodies of stuff like they would just like the Super Mario Brothers Super Show did a lot of that. Like they would just like take Mario and just like stick him in a parody of like James Bond or Sherlock Holmes or, you know, um, there was like the Road Warrior episode. <clears throat> like a poor man's Animaniacs. Like like a poor man's Animaniacs. Exactly. Um, and like uh, there's actually a very early issue where Robotnik gets an idea looking at all of uh, the comic books of one of his henchmen and he just bases a bunch of uh, of his new robots to fight Sonic like off of superheroes. So he has like Botman, who's like a uh, Batman parody and um, he tries to order a Wolverine one, um, but it comes out as Wolf Urkel. So you have a robot Urkel from Family Matters just walking in to fight Sonic, which was like their inside joke about Jaleel White voicing Sonic in both of the cartoons that I mentioned. <laughs> 
That's actually pretty, that's pretty creative. That's that, pretty interesting. That, I, yeah, I like that. Yeah, Sonic kind of looks at the Urkel robot and he's like, hey, wait a minute, your voice sounds familiar. Like, <laughs> even though it's a comic book and that's you can't funny. hear his voice, but <laughs> I mean, yeah. It, it, you, it, you can now. <laughs> it, 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 it gave me a chuckle. What can I say? Um, and then also in this particular issue, uh, the last robot that uh, Robotnik sends after him is uh, called Spawn Mower. It has the top half of Spawn's body from Image Comics and the bottom half is a lawnmower wow. that is tearing down the forest. <laughs> I actually think I'm, I'm listening to you say this. I think I would I would probably really get invested in that if they made something like that today and kind of made like I think you said earlier, like a mad magazine kind of vibe to it with with Sonic the Hedgehog. Maybe not Sonic. I but there has to be a video game character you could do that with. Maybe they can dig up Gex for a little bit. I was going to say, Gex, you need, to, you need to go for a mascot character. You need to go for, like, a Rayman or a Crash Bandicoot or some, something. Somebody, like, recognizable, yeah. and they have, like, a distinct personality. And, you know, they're up to no good, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, Spyro isn't doing anything anymore since Skylanders crashed. So, I mean, he's he's there. Oh God! I was just I was just watching a video on that that broke my heart. You know, as somebody oh, yeah. as somebody who collects a lot of amiibos, I was just looking over at the Skylander people, and I'm like, Oh God! I'm so sorry. Your kingdom has fallen. Um, yeah, I was one of those people. You're right. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm sending hugs your way. But um, and uh, I should also mention that they throw out alternate universes almost immediately. Like issue two has the first alternate universe, and those are going to become really important as the comic goes on. Uh, because what happens in issue two is uh, they Sonic goes into the special world where you're supposed to collect rings and get the Chaos Emeralds. But uh, he discovers that there are two guys who live there named Al and Cal or Horizontal and Vertical. So Horizontal is like this short, you know, fat guy who's kind of wide. And you have a Vertical who's kind of tall and skinny. And they just do like this trippy, like kind of duck amuck, like Daffy Duck kind of, you know, thing with just like screwing with Sonic and it has all these surreal like you know colors and shapes in the background because he doesn't know which direction is up and which way he's going and then he finally escapes the special zone and that's the end of that <clears throat> and that becomes important later it, it does actually what becomes really funny is that because the comic does become uh, serious like after they kind of after the writers kind of caught up and they realized the tone of the sat am comic they're kind of like oh shoot we should probably uh, see if we can match that tone a little better everything gets like a little bit more grim and serious even stuff that shouldn't have been grim and serious so uh, Al and Cal get a uh, gritty reboot like before the comic is over so oh, Sonic no. and Ta Sonic and Tails return to the special zone and they discover that they've turned into just like these big scary robots like uh, with spikes and red eyes and they're shooting lasers and everything because they've turned evil and now all they're doing is fighting each other instead of like you know playing around and screwing with people like they were before <laughs> that definitely sounds like something i would do if i was a teenager and i was writing a comic book yeah you go from like the comic books you wrote for, like in math class or whatever from when you're 10 to when you're like 13 when all of a sudden you're just like you know uh you've you've entered your edgelord phase but you're still like not completely grown up yet so you just try to which actually sums up the Sonic brand like a lot now that I think about it. Um, yeah. No, here's, some, I, I, go ahead. here's something that's supposed to be cute and fun. And all of a sudden we're making it grim and serious. It's like Sonic Heroes or no, not Sonic Heroes. Uh, Sonic Forces. That's what I'm thinking of. Uh, that and Sonic 06, especially Sonic 06. Oh, you know, believe it or not, as far as I can tell, um, either they didn't do an adaptation of Sonic 06 in the main line, or I think that was relegated to one of the specials. I, I didn't I wasn't going to dig deep enough for Sonic 06. So that's that's on me. Um, so I did kind of a I did kind of a brief review over this. And like, by the way, you're talking about the comics and the way you have it evolve. 
when you start to look at the games like Sonic 06 and um, the storybook Sonic games, where you have uh, was a Sonic the Black Knight, Sonic Unleashed, and uh, Sonic and the Secret Rings, I, I think. I don't know what it's called. The one where you like it's an endless runner and they actually an upgrade is so you can control Sonic correctly. It's a bad game. Yeah, that yeah, that's the secret rings. You like tilt the Wii yeah. side to side instead of using the joystick. Yeah, which got good reviews until it didn't, which is weird. Yeah. <laughs> that's every Sonic game. It got good reviews until it didn't. <laughs> Except for Sonic 06. That got lamb- lambasted. <laughs> just just, just immediately got lambasted. <laughs> but but everyone, you know, was like, what is this stuff? What how can Sonic do this? But when you do a brief review over the comics, it's not too outside of the expectations of what they were doing with the brand in external media outside of video games. Well, this might be a good time to mention this. So a thing about the production history of the comic from beginning to end is that you got to understand is that I'm joking about the fact that the Archie writers didn't really get Sonic or care about Sonic. But what you also have to understand is that Sega did not give a shit either. Um and why would they? Because, uh, you know, any any kind of ancillary material like a comic or an animated TV show is not supposed to be considered canon by a game developer. So they just kind of go, all right, this is kind of a way to keep our IP in the public eye. And it, uh, you know, it makes more in revenue than it costs to produce. So why why the hell wouldn't you keep, um, you know, producing it? So even though I was a Nintendo kid, I just kept on reading the Sonic comics because they just kept making them. And, you know. Why wouldn't you? This was in a time when uh, comics were relatively uh, cheap to produce. Um, but didn't they tie in, the in ca- with Sonic Adventure? Like, isn't they? Like, did, didn't they? They, change they Amy did Rose to look like Sonic Adventure Amy Rose. They did. I um, did you already spoil about that? Because I was uh, going to get to that because that was in the main line. So that was going to be towards uh, the end before we got to the uh, end of the first hundred issues. <laughs> well, then I won't talk. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I might as well talk about it. So, um, but one of the things. Uh, with uh, the the Archie comics is that um, there are deus ex machinas everywhere. The, like, there are so many either objects or, like, gods or just, you know, mystical creatures running around. There are just deus ex machinas galore. And in the Sonic comics, Chaos Emeralds are just everywhere. Like, they, and they're all green, so they all actually look like emeralds instead of, like, the colored jewels that you have in the games. But there are occasions where you can just, like, find them and, you know, just while you're just milling about and, you know, you'll just be awash in emeralds. In fact, there's one side special that they did where it's Supersonic versus Hyper Knuckles. It's, like, a big dumb fight issue, which are the best ones. Like, you just want nothing but action when you're a kid. And TV so they Sonic. go and... Yeah, exactly. And so you go into the, uh, they go into this special zone that is just a wash with rings and chaos emeralds. And Sonic immediately grabs seven and he becomes supersonic. And Knuckles looks at him and he's like, what the hell? I just need seven emeralds? Okay. He looks around and he's like, one, two, three, four, five. He just grabs seven emeralds from like the other side of the ring. And all of a sudden he becomes hyper Knuckles. <laughs> like that's how many emeralds you have just floating around on a regular basis. <laughs> They're, they're super important. They just they're, they're everywhere. They're su- in fact, um, Ian Flynn. I'll get to that when we get to it. But one of the first things he did as a writer was that he uh, finally just compressed it down to the regular seven because he was just sick of chaos emeralds being around everywhere for people to use for whatever purpose. He's like, this is making everything way too easy. Let's get back down to the regular seven. <laughs> That's good. That that needs to change because if if you know chaos emeralds are something that people coming from outside of the comic books and they're supposed to be special things you know like dragon balls essentially because you have to collect them every sonic game and that, that once you have them you lose them and then you need to go get them again if they're just like that readily available they almost become meaningless yes um 
And speaking of stuff that becomes meaningless, so I should probably get to Ken Penders himself. So oh, nice. Ken, 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 Ken Penders is kind of at the center of the history of the comic, whether you like it or not, because um, he wrote from, I'm looking at my notes here, he wrote from like issue 11 up until issue 160. So he tried to style himself as like the head writer of the series. That was not true. Everybody was working on a freelance basis, but he was one of the guys who had been around for like a really long time and had introduced a lot of plot elements. So he kind of styled himself as the, um, as you know, the Svengali of this series, even if uh, Sega and Archie didn't consider it the same way. And the thing you got to understand about Ken Penders is that he does not give a shit about Sonic. Like, absolutely not. He is interested in writing everything else in the universe of this comic except Sonic himself. Like, that's one thing that kind of becomes weird as the comic kind of goes on is that Sonic is not really a proactive main character. He's very, like, reactive. He just kind of reacts to stuff that happens around him instead of deciding, you know, this is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to do it. Um... And uh, Penders, he, you know, comes from the generation where he was really into, like, Silver Age Marvel, where uh, he was really into, like, uh, the the dude basically worshipped Jack Kirby to the point where I think he styled himself as the Jack Kirby of the Sonic universe. In fact, one of the things that really kills me is that um, he introduced a historian that explains all of the history of the Sonic world, you know, because this is, like, around issue 75 or something like that, and finally we're getting to the backstory. And uh, the main historian who wrote all of this down, he named Kirby. So all the people in the Sonic universe can stand around and talk about what a great storyteller Kirby was. It's like the big pink marshmallow happiest internal genocidal vortex of food. Yes, exactly. Um, and if he's not and if he's not ripping off Jack Kirby, he's ripping off John Burns run on Superman. So um when you go to the floating island and so and Knuckles discovers, like, you know, the uh, his people, the race of echidnas, like uh, they it exist in a city that exists in an alternate dimension because everything is in an, in an alternate dimension in these comics. Uh, and it's this big, glorious white city that uh, looks exactly like Krypton. Like it, oh, everybody no. just walk. <laughs> it looks exactly like this, like the like the hidden cities on Krypton. It's hilarious. Um, and every and every. And, and everybody looks like and everybody looks like Knuckles. Everybody has the exact same tone. So every single Knuckles story is just like a wash with red because everybody looks like Knuckles. <laughs> well, that in a way that kind of explains there's, there's a couple things I, I think about when I when I hear you talking about that. It kind of explains Sonic Adventure. And while they're on, I think it's Angel Island in, in Sonic Adventure. I might be wrong. But that's when you started to see the whole entire shift of the narrative in the in the Sonic game series talk more about the echidnas and how, what they had with the chaos emeralds and all that stuff. So if that was, if that was their influence in making that decision, like, because that was going on in the comics, that would probably make a lot of sense. And you would, you would think that except, yeah. um, so, something that I should have gotten back to, uh, I got off topic. I'm sorry about that. That's fine. But, um, well, uh, the thing is, is that Sega gave so little of a shit uh, that 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 whole train of thought that I was going on is that they would not send uh, the comic writers uh, any like Bibles or story summaries or character profiles for any of the games as they started getting more story heavy. And Sonic Adventure is a perfect example of that. They have to adapt it. And Archie is like, you know, hey, can we have some story elements? And Sega's like, no, 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 no. We're keeping those a secret. So what they did is they had uh, Pat Spaziante, who was um, a longtime artist on the series. He did most of the covers. He did most of the very action-heavy stories. He's probably the best artist that the comic ever had. Uh, he imported a copy of Sonic Adventure from Japan played through it and it's untranslated. So he's just going through everything with like the temple of the echidnas and 
perfect chaos and uh, Amy's story with the bird and the robots and everything else. And he's just winging it when it comes to the story. He's like just trying to... He just he just took whatever he found and uh, he just tried to adapt it the best he could. And um, actually going back to the history of the Sonic, uh, you know, the hi- history written by Kirby, the great historian. Um, so they established where Robotnik came from is he came from a race of people called the Overlanders. Uh, that's their name for uh, humans. And every single one of the humans in the Overlanders race, um, they look like those figures that you see from those art books where they're like, learn how to draw anime. They're like these very generic like anime dudes with like spiky hair and very like strong chins. Um, oh, no. Yeah. So he came from them and he like, you know, teamed up with the, uh, you know, with the animal species, with the king of uh, acorns, betrayed him, uh, threw him inside uh, this other alternate dimension because of course he did and uh, took over the world. And that's where, you know, Sonic and Sally had to like, you know, vacate to the forest in order to, um, you know, see if they could fight back and find Sally's father. Like that's, those are all elements that were carried over from the Saturday morning cartoon. So they kept them in the comic once they finally got to that. Um, and all the overlanders are racist against, um, uh, all of the animals and their racial slur is calling them furries. So there are actual oh, no. panels where <laughs> there are actual panels where you will hear them chanting down with the furries and you're like, no. um, <laughs> no. <laughs> like, you're like, uh, dude, that word doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> maybe it may, maybe it means exactly what they meant it to mean. I don't <laughs> maybe, <know. laughs> maybe, there, maybe this is when DeviantArt was getting big and they felt like they were, um, you know, encroaching on their territory. I mean, when you that think it, about it, and I don't, I don't know who who the main readership of of Sonic uh, comics were, but like you would think that would be a very appealing comic to furries. They would be the kind of people who would who would read that because you have these. Uh, I, I'm I'm going to screw this word up. Ana Ana Pomorphic Ana Anthropomorphic Anthropomorphic. I'm sorry, I, I I got it wrong, but yeah, anthropomorphic characters that you have there like even princess sally for some reason has breasts or a lot of the animal characters have like the female ones have human breasts i don't know why they do but you think that that would be more appealing to the the furry community because that's that's kind of their thing from what i've seen and i might be wrong i don't want to jump to conclusions but just from some of the the furries i've talked to and associate with that's that that's kind of their thing. Am, 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 am I kind of right here? I hope. You, no, you are. In fact, um, uh, before uh, Pender's left, so anything like, you know, uh, before issue 160, um, it, like you kind of start to get the feeling like either they were starting to recruit furry artists or they were like kind of almost being the progenitors of of what we consider furry art now because all of the female characters, especially Sally and especially Bunny, get like gradually more sexualized like over the course of like uh, the Pender's Bowlers run. Oh, like yeah. uh, there's, e- there's even a side story where Bunny like uh, gets an upgrade on her cybernetic parts where and uh, basically the upgrade is it gives her like more shapely legs like because she had oh, the really no. blocky legs in the Sad AM cartoon. Um, and then they upgrade her to like make the legs a little bit more slender. She has more of a butt like um, and it and with in the case of Sally, like Sally is kind of nude when you look at her like she kind of she has like nude. A, she is <laughs> new animals. Yeah. And I think Sega like started to get like slightly uncomfortable with that because in the second season of the cartoon, they give Sally a vest. They're like, hey, uh, she's kind of naked. Can we give her a vest? This is like making us feel uncomfortable. Yeah, and um, especially when she has tits. 
Yeah, and toward and towards the end of the run, like they finally just gave Sally a full outfit when uh, Sega started like uh, coming down on the comic a little bit more and having more mandates. And they're like, "Look, give her clothes. We don't want to. We're tired of this. We don't mind. We want. We don't want this to be weird anymore." <laughs> Which it's fine if it's weird, but if your target demographic is ten year olds, is is children? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, and make no mistake, I've got nothing against furry art, but like, yeah, you're right. This is for children. And I'm kind of just like, uh, uh, I don't know if you should be, you know, drawing her butt like that pert, you know, if you're. <laughs> yeah, her butt should not look like Miranda from from Mass Effect 2. OK, no. And and actually, that was that was another thing that um uh, Ian Flynn cut down on after his after uh, he took over. Like uh, they brought on a new uh, artist, uh, Tracy Yardley, who was probably the most consistent artist because um, consistency is key when you're doing a monthly comic. And suddenly when Tracy Yardley started drawing the art, like everybody looked like a Sonic character again, because since they started sexualizing Sally and Bunny so much, they started looking more humanoid than Sonic did, who kind of has like a Felix the Cat kind of design. So. Yeah. Yardley takes over. Everybody like has the same proportions. Like nobody has just like boobs and butt out of nowhere. Like everybody looks like they belong in a Sonic the Hedgehog property again, which, you know, like uh, I'm sure there were some furries who were disappointed about that. But I'm just kind of like, you know, it's less sexualized, but the art like looks more consistent. Like they they look like Sonic characters. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think by that point, I could understand if most of their audience was furries. But again, if you're Sega and this is something that you're putting your name on and your brand on, and you're going to want it advertised towards, towards children, they probably would be happier with that direction. I, I can only assume. Yeah. So what, when did that shift happen? Because you say this happened a lot in, in the Penders era, and you said he started at episode 10. So when did, so a couple things. When did you start seeing that shift more towards serious, uh, serious Sonic comics? And I guess that would also include kind of the more... Uh, a, like adult minded, more sexualized kind of comic setting and more serious tone overall. Well, um, so, uh, first of all, issue, uh, Penders first started writing around, um, issue 11. So just to make that clear, and he still kind of went in with the goofier tone that, um, Gallagher and, uh, Manic had, mm -hmm. and he introduced, uh, two things that would become really crucial. He introduced the cosmic interstate, which is basically the freeway between all of these, um, alternate dimensions. Uh, they introduced so many that they had to get a freaking freeway, like, you know, like it's, uh, the freaking I five or something like, uh, trying to figure out where any of them are. And Sonic is one of the few people that is fast enough to navigate that in a pretty short amount of time. And he also introduces evil Sonic, uh, who has uh, Sonic with uh, sunglasses on and a leather jacket to show that he's evil. <laughs> and evil evil Sonic does become more important later. So uh, I just had to kind of mention that really quickly. But the more serious tone that kind of happens around issue 17, because they start introducing their first uh, serious plot line about um, Princess Sally. Um, and if you remember in the um, Saturday morning cartoon, Sally had uh, her little personal computer, Nicole. Um, it, it was like her it was like her little smart device. Um, uh, so in the show, I don't think Nicole ever had an origin. She was just like there. She was just a, a tool that like Sally used. But Penders uh, decided to uh, do this whole story where like it turns out that Nicole is an invention from the future. 25 years later, when uh, Robotnik has been defeated and everything is good, Sonic and Sally are married and they have some kids and they're ruling, um, you know, ruling uh, the kingdom like, you know, peacefully. The kingdom, yeah. The, the acorn kingdom. It's like the ending of Harry Potter, but it's like way more extended. And um, 
For, and so Sally, like, has perfected Nicole at that point and sends her back in time to help her younger self defeat uh, defeat evil. I have no idea where Pender's got the idea to uh, do this. <laughs> like, so like, it, so- it sounds like Trunks. It kind, it kind, it's a little bit like Future Trunks. Like, imagine Future Trunks if he just came back as an iPhone or something like that that was just loaded with all the information you need to save the future. And, but Nicole actually doesn't, like, you know, give them the information they need about the future. Nicole just kind of acts as, like, a general, like, Siri-type device whenever they go on missions. So I don't understand why, you know, they needed to invoke time travel. Well, this was um, also the era of Terminator 2 as well. So it's not exactly... That this wasn't exactly outside of the mind of the, the public consciousness of time traveling robots going back and trying to save the world. Actually, that leads into the next thing because uh, oh, snap. Th- within 10 issues, Penders brings back the multiverse thing where he basically does like Crisis of Infinite Sonics, where a Terminator style Sonic, because this is still in the parody era, oh, comes. No to Sonic's dimension and he goes uh hey listen I come from a dimension where Robotnik won and he's turned himself completely uh robotic like um and he's going to try to invade all of your other universes we need to get all of the Sonics together and see if we can defeat him and uh the the uh the robot Robotnik from the alternate dimension he looks like the regular Robotnik except he's uh completely like black he's like black carbon fiber it's like when you get like the carbon fiber skin in Overwatch like uh <laughs> He actually, oh, wow. he actually looks kind of cool, and so he tries to take everything over, and they get all the Sonics together from the alternate dimensions, and because Penders has to do, like, endless parodies of Marvel stuff that Jack Kirby wrote, you have, like, Sonic if he was the Hulk, or Sonic if he was uh, the Human Torch, or you go over to DC, you have uh, Sonic, but he's in a Batman costume. Like, they just have to fill all of this space with all of these extras of Sonic taking on this robot Robotnik. <laughs> So to, to understand, to kind of just capture this, to, to, to put this in my own layman's terms... Penders was trying to write the Avengers with Sonic characters. And all of the Avengers are just Sonic. They're just a different versions of Sonic. <laughs> yeah, they're just, just different alternate dimensions. So they kind of like made all the different Earths of the DC world. I know Marvel does something similar, and they just assign different characteristics to the different Sonics and all these Earths to make them all the Marvel characters. Yes. Actually, um, uh, this is something we did privately before we recorded this episode. I sent you the uh, Sally Moon parody. <laughs> yes. Which is a Sonic, which is a Sonic parody where uh, Sonic falls into the Sailor Moon universe. Princess Sally looks like uh, Sailor Moon and they gave her the way longer legs, which look really freaking weird with uh, Sally's proportions. And Knuckles looks like Tuxedo Mask. And it just looks like Tuxedo Mask as he normally is, but with Knuckles' head on top of it. And it just... <laughs> Just the just the height of tuxedo mask, but with this knuckles face, like makes uh, for some really weird dissonance. But I wanted to bring that up because that <laughs> issue was written by Dan Slott, who is one of the most prominent Spider-Man writers, and uh, he's the he's the man responsible for the Spider Verse. If you enjoy the Spider Verse, like Dan Slott is to thank for it. And one of his early jobs was writing the Sailor Moon parody for the Sonic Archie comics. <laughs> so just even if when you even when you don't have alternate dimensions, you still have alternate dimensions. <laughs> I still think, like, I think that's, that's, I don't know how you think. I mean, I know we're definitely going to get into that. But that's kind of where I would see, like, the appropriate use of Sonic is to continue that parody along. Because, for the most part, when Sonic tries to do a really deep story, it doesn't work. Or it feels awkward. No. Well, it. It's not that I don't think Sonic can do a serious story. Like, right, I started right, rewatching yeah. the Sat AM comic in preparation for this episode, and I was genuinely invested in it. Like, it actually has some really great storytelling. Um, 
And I should also mention, uh, so the writer of most of those episodes was named Ben Hurst. He wasn't like the head writer, but he wrote like most of the scripts. He worked on Sonic Underground mm-hmm. later, so he was like responsible for a lot of the 90s cartoons. So Penders said that he had a conversation with Ben Hurst saying that uh, Hurst had like passed the torch to him with the Sat AM characters to kind of... Um, you know, shepherd them into future stories. Uh, Ben Hurst confirmed that this was not the case. Uh, And I have the exact quote in front of me right here. Just for the record, Ken has often said that Ben Hurst uh, passed the torch to me for Sonic the Hedgehog, usually expressed in a way to make it clear that I passed the torch to him. Not true. I was just trying to be nice. (laughs) Oh, okay. Just oof. What I said was since the comic was ongoing and the animated series was over, the torch had been passed to him by default. Uh, the way he expressed it in the past makes conveys the impression that he has my approval of his work. He doesn't. In fact, I haven't read a single comic that he's written. <laughs> well, that's a that's that's what you call being being let down uh, easy, I guess. Um, it's a gentle burn, a little bit. <laughs> so it's it's around uh, issue twenty that like the serious elements start coming up, and I will say Penders okay. does uh, contribute to that. Um, but it's not again, it's not for Sonic. Um, because the thing with Penders is that he would pitch a bunch of ideas to Sega, um, and they would reject them. But if he suggested them for other characters, they would almost always approve them. So in these early days, he, uh, started really writing a lot of Princess Sally, and he started writing a lot of Knuckles. Like, uh, if anything, you should consider him the writer of Knuckles, because, uh, Knuckles got his own spinoff series that lasted for three dozen issues, and Penders wrote every single one of them. And and it kind of becomes hilarious over over time because like uh, all of a sudden Knuckles starts to become more important in the storyline and starts to have like more you know destiny and more like things involving him and you're like hey wait a minute wasn't this Sonic like shouldn't we kind of focus on him like shouldn't he have like the vague magical destinies and everything else so it's around issue twenty they start setting up the um they start setting things up so Sally can get her own spinoff series it lasted for three issues it was kind of a mini series. Uh, and in issue 20, it has her on a mission on her own uh, that rips off the opening of Goldfinger because we have to do another parody. It has the thing where she like swims into the dock and she has the helmet with like the little duck on top and she sneaks in to plant some explosives and, and she escapes at the last minute. And she meets another agent who she teams up with who is named Joffrey St. John. He is a skunk uh, who is loyal to the crown uh, and somehow she hasn't met him up until this point. So figure that out. Um, he had... He alternately has an Australian or Cockney accent, depending on the uh, writer. And he kind of becomes like Sally's partner for this entire story. And when they introduce him to the main story after Sally's miniseries is over, he kind of becomes a romantic rival like for Sally. Like so him and Sonic keep on getting into it. And I have to make this absolutely clear. Joffrey is the fucking worst. He is the worst character. He is like very smug. He's like, you know. Like, uh, keeps on rubbing in his face that, like, uh, you know, he's into Princess Sally and he's going to try to hook up with her. And so he's like Joffrey. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Wait, which Joffrey are we talking about? Game of Thrones. Oh, Game of Thrones. Okay. Well, Joffrey wasn't really interested in romance, you know, unless it involved murder somehow. But that's uh, (laughs) he was he was he was into. Well, not what I would call romance, but he was definitely into things with women. Yeah. And and the thing is, is that, you know, you have, you know, love triangles like this all the time. But the thing is, is that, you know, you usually still have it set up where the main character is heavily implied to still 
hook up with the love interest. Penders, it seems like he sincerely wants to hook up Sally with Joffrey instead of Sonic. Um, to the point where, and I am not making this up, in the miniseries, he wanted to include a side plot where uh, Sally loses her virginity to Joffrey. He wanted to put this in a G-rated comic for children. Sally loses what? her virginity to this to this skunk with a Cockney accent. And that's creepy enough on what? its own. But Penders also wanted to establish that uh, Joffrey was in his 20s. Sonic and Sally are 15 in this story. So he, he was totally okay with Sally... A 15-year-old girl losing her virginity to a man in his 20s. <laughs> like, that is creepy. I don't care who you are. That is what? creepy. <laughs> and by the way, every time Joffrey insults Sonic, he goes like, oh, don't let a boy do a man's job. I'm like, that boy is the same age as the girl you're trying to hook up with. <laughs> you fucking creep. <laughs> talking about <laughs> this this is a thing penders has confirmed it on multiple occasions he wanted to write a story where princess sally lost her virginity and it wasn't to sonic <laughs> oh no <laughs> the story has already gone to plan <laughs> this isn't even like a japanese manga because i know in, in japan that's that's for some reason okay i, I get different cultures but and, and bear in mind and bear in mind, they haven't completely gotten rid of the Mad Magazine-inspired stories. After Princess oh, Sally's no. story is over, they return to the main story where Rotor gets sick with a um, virus that Robotnik gave. So Sonic has to shrink himself down and go inside um, uh, go inside Rotor's body. And he teams up with Rotor's antibodies, who look like your, your auntie. They look like your aunt. It looks like Rotor with like a wig on, and this is inside of his body, like it's Jabu Jabu's belly from Ocarina of Time. It right. looks like a Monty. It looks like Rotor is in the middle of a Monty Python skit, and they team up to fight the virus inside Sonic's body. Where like less than ten issues ago, Sally almost lost her virginity to a skunk. Skunk. <laughs> a, tw a, tw a, a, a twenty-something skunk. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. He's a, he's a he's a loner at his at his at his, and just in the local neighborhood. You know, he just yeah. picks up picks up the junior high school girls. He's he's a cool yeah. dude. He's a cool dude. <laughs> Rides around his Pontiac GTO, blasting White Snake. <laughs> One thing I like about the knot hole girls, I keep getting older. They stay the same age. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. And then, <laughs> so, uh, not really an alternate dimension thing, but something you also got to remember in this is that when they do deign to write for Sonic is that he is also ridiculously OP. Like, this is probably one of the most OP versions of Sonic. He's probably comparable to The Flash. Um, okay. Uh, like, for example, Death Battle recently did an episode where the Flash fights Sonic and they talk about some of his powers. There is one comic where a bunch of robot birds are flying in from uh, the sky and Sonic happens to be near a river and he's like, I got an idea. So he runs over to the river and he moves so fast that he manages to ball up water in the river before it dissipates in his hand and fling it at these robot birds like like they're snowballs. Like that is how fast that he can move. <laughs> I, so wish, I wish... I wish they did that in a game, and like Platinum Games makes an alliteration of Sonic, an iteration, not an alliteration, Jesus, uh, makes an iteration of Sonic where you can do shit like that. I think that would be, I think that would be badass. That that would be a lot of fun, actually, where you just have like these context sensitive events where you can just do different things with speed. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah. Um, but uh, so around this time, uh. Sonic manages to collect his one billionth ring and it sends him into this crazy alternate dimension where just uh, he meets the ancient walkers who are the gods of our world and they all look like dinosaurs wearing like tiki masks. So imagine like a pterodactyl wearing like um, 
what was the name of the tiki guy from Banjo Kazooie? Um, Mumbo Jumbo. That's it. Okay. And uh, he just goes through a bunch of trippy shit, and then he finally falls back in. So thirty issues in, and we're still having like Sonic go through trippy reality, and then it just like spits him out at the end. Um, but the billionth ring actually does become important. So he just like mounts it on his wall, and the billionth ring just does whatever the story recall like requires it to at that given time. Um, doesn't I have to ask you a question? Does does doesn't Robotnik die? Yes, uh, we should probably skip ahead to that. So um, they thought they were going to get canceled around issue 50. Um, so they decided to do a big endgame story where uh, it's kind of like the series finale of the comic, right? And mm-hmm. so um, they what happens is they're on a mission in a Robotropolis where Robotnik's base is. And uh, Princess Sally, it looks like everybody's off, uh, off on the mission. So like, uh, and it looks like... Uh, to them, it looks like Sonic pushes Sally off a roof and she dies. Princess Sally dies. And the idea behind this was that the Princess Sally miniseries did not sell well. So Pender's interpretation from that was that people weren't interested in Princess Sally. So he just decided to kill off the character. Never mind the fact that wow. Princess Sally is never mind the fact that Princess Sally is a supporting character from a very specific adaptation of a video game character who does not appear in said miniseries. Sonic does not appear in the Princess Sally miniseries at all. So it's like, of course nobody fucking read it. Like, what what did you think was going to happen? But his interpretation was, oh, people don't like Sally. I guess we should kill her. So it becomes a four-issue... It becomes a four-issue story where Sonic is a fugitive on the run because everybody thinks that he murdered Princess Sally. Turns out that's not the case. Turns out it was a plan that Robotnik had behind the scenes with um, some double agents who were working in Knothole. And there's actually a really great moment where the whole time Sonic, you know, Robotnik has not been able to find Knothole Village, then he finally walks right in to the main base where all of the heroes are. It's like the, that scene in The Empire Strikes Back where they see Darth Vader sitting there at dinner. And one thing I love is that Rotor just like pulls out one of his like, you know, laser guns that he happens to have and he tries to point blank shoot Robotnik like Han Solo did and I know that's a rip off of a famous movie scene but I still really liked it like <laughs> that is their first instinct Robotnik's here oh shit blam <laughs> um, so, and, so, and so Joffrey goes on the hunt because of course he does because he killed like you know the teenage filly that he was trying to hook up with um, <laughs> you, you need to be punished Sonic and so one of the people that helps uh, Sonic escape is uh, Dulcie the dragon who was a character that was introduced in um, the Sat AM series honestly Dulcie's not that great and she doesn't really uh, do that much but they thought like oh well we have this on hand like we should probably uh, you know use her and they establish this is how they resolve uh so- the whole Sonic fugitive plot because uh, Joffrey and Knuckles team up at one point to track down Sonic. And so um, they find him with Dulcie. They have a big dumb fight. And Dulcie says, dragons are naturally able to, uh, uh, dragons aren't able to tell lies. Therefore, we are able to sense the truth. And I can tell oh, that Sonic is telling the truth about not murdering Sally. And Knuckles just goes, yeah, that's true. Dragons are able to sense truth. A dragon's word is fact. And all I could think was, you couldn't track down a dragon and just ask them whether or not, like, it's, someone actually did something or not. <laughs> They had to sum up this plot in four, in four issues, so I guess they had to just, like, wrap it up somehow. Um, but then it gets to the 50th issue, which is actually really, really rad. Um, but the 50th issue, like, was so really densely packed because they thought this was going to be the ending. It has four credited writers and six credited artists. They had to release a director's cut because they didn't weren't able to get some content done in time. And so Robotnik's ultimate plan is that he's created this weapon called the Ultimate Annihilator. It's like this giant laser. It looks like um, 
Uh, it looks like the sister Ray from Final Fantasy VII. And so he just plans to sync it up with his satellite and friggin' nuke Knothole Village now that he knows, um, you know, uh, where the village is. However, you have Snively, who was his sidekick in the Saturday morning cartoon. Snively is like the Starscream. He was even voiced by Charlie Adler, who eventually voiced Starscream. And um, isn't isn't he related to Robotnik in the in the comics? Yes, he, too? he yes, he's his nephew. Um, and so Snively reprogrammed it so the Ultimate Annihilator only kills Robotnik. And uh, so it, it, you have a giant laser that somehow manages to only kill one person. I don't know. Figure that out. Um, but what I love is that at the end of issue 50, you, Pat Spaziante, who I said was the best artist, they have the big dumb fight where um, Sonic and Robotnik just finally have like the the final brawl to the death. And it is one of the coolest comic pages I have ever seen in my life. Just like because so, Spaziante, he has like incredible like weight and movement for his action scenes. Like there's a reason they got him for the action stuff. And so they just kind of are circling each other for a minute. And then Sonic just like friggin like launches himself like and just headbutts Robotnik in that giant stomach. Then Robotnik just grabs him and slams him into the wall and then just shoots a laser over there. And Sonic does a spin over here and everything is blowing up around them. It's like it's like you what you want for the final fight between your hero and your villain. You know what I mean? That's so cool. Yeah. And so um but Robotnik dies, and uh, they reveal that, uh, oh, Princess Sally isn't really dead. We just put her in a living sleep, like, you know, so we could try to, you know, revive her later. So, hey, everybody, turns out Sally's fine, um, and they managed to rescue uh, King Max, um, King Acorn, from the, um, from the alternate dimension. Although King Acorn kind of becomes uh, his own plot cul-de-sac a little bit, because once they rescue him, because of a side effect of the Zone of Silence, uh, he's slowly, like, starting to crystallize. Like, his whole body is turning into crystal. So they send Knuckles off on a mission. He's a lassie. He's a lassie, yeah. So they send Knuckles off on a mission to recover the Sword of Acorns. So the Sword of Acorns is the biggest deus ex machina in the story. So here, I, I'm i going to try to explain this as concisely as I can. The, the family of Acorn has access to this thing called the Source of All, which is a big glowing pool filled with golden liquid. And... Apparently, it's just like the distilled essence of the universe. It's basically just like a pantheistic god in like a gold pool form. And once you swim in it, you basically gain all knowledge and you gain um, all power. And it's been in the, uh, you know, it's been in the Acorn royal family for generations. So they had an occasion when King Acorn was a young boy. He bathed in the golden pool. And then once he got out, they drained all of the gold essence off of him and they molded it into the Sword of Acorns. So the Sword of Acorns is a literal deus ex machina. It is made from the distilled essence of God and it does whatever that the story requires. And... They send Knuckles off to find this thing, so he has, like, his little side stories, and it lets Ken Penders give, gives him the opportunity to switch from ripping off Marvel stories to ripping off um, D&D stories. Like, there's one issue where, like, that opens up with Knuckles straight up fighting a beholder. Like, it's not even, it's not even ambiguous. He is fighting a beholder. It has the eye. It has the tentacles. It is a beholder. <laughs> and it, it certainly sounds like Ken Penders didn't give really too much of a fuck about Sonic and cared way more about Knuckles. Yes, because he wrote um, it just the Knuckles issues are kind of like a whole beast unto themselves. They get like really um, unwieldy because he was just like unleashed. He was just like, you know, free to just kind of do whatever he wanted. And we should probably mention unleashed that is probably not the best word. No, no. <laughs> 
Actually, speaking of uh, the later games, after Sonic Adventure, they just kind of did like brief adaptations of the games. Like they were kind of like the side story and issues because, um, you know, they had their own ongoing plot, so they couldn't fit it in there. And so when they did Sonic Adventure 2, they just had Pat Spaziante uh, illustrate the uh, opening where Sonic escapes from the helicopter and he slides down the surfboard in the middle of San Francisco, which is kind of all you want, really. Like and. Like I said, Spaziante was so good at drawing action that as soon as, like, Sonic hits the ground on the surfboard and he starts sliding down the hill, I kind of heard, like, Escape from the City in my head. Like, I kind of really got into it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, even though it's a comic and it doesn't move, as soon as he hits the ground, all I hear is boo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo. <laughs> so I think that's a good spot where we can take a, a nice little break here. And when we come back, we're going to be talking... Lawsuits and Dark Chronicles. Yes. Blue streak speeds by Sonic the Hedgehog. Too fast for the naked eye. Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic, he can really move. Sonic, he's got an attitude. Sonic, he's the fastest thing alive. Storms through Sonic the Hedgehog. Don't doubt what he can do. Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic, he can really move. Sonic, he's got an attitude. Sonic, he's the fastest thing alive. He's the fastest thing alive. He's the fastest thing alive. And everyone, welcome back. From that nice little musical piece or whatever the hell I'm going to put in between there where the break was. <laughs> to be determined later. I'm not quite sure. Yes, to be determined later as I'm recording this. So uh, don't worry about just it. be some wild, crazy Sonic Saturday morning cartoon music. In fact, that is probably what you just heard. But if I can't find that, I'll just be some Sonic related crap. Hey, that that theme song in the Sat AM cartoon is still really freaking rad. Like I, I've heard it a bunch of times rewatching the episodes and I still unironically love it. <laughs> So I'll do whatever I can to put it there. But if it's not there, oh, well, I, yeah. I'm lying right now. I just don't know. So past me is lying. Fuck you, past me. Yeah. But in any case, moving forward, I think one of the most interesting things Seamus has, has brought up to me is Pender's and his lawsuit with Archie and Sega and how it stemmed from a Bioware game. So Seamus, how about you give us some information on that? Okay, so um, we were kind of talking about the Knuckles comics a little bit, which I honestly was not going to get into very much, um, but they are uh, important when you talk about the lawsuit and about the Bioware game. So uh, Pender, since Pender's had more of his ideas approved when he uh, suggested them for Knuckles as opposed to Sonic, and Knuckles was still a popular enough character at the time, uh, this was before Shadow got introduced as the new rival character, they thought, okay, we'll give Knuckles his own spinoff series, Penders will write all of it, and we'll just have everybody else like do whatever they want for uh, the Sonic issues. And so Penders created his whole universe for uh, Knuckles, and it included a, a group of villains called the Dark Brotherhood, which were um, echidnas that had cybernetic enhancements. Because one thing that they established is that the echidnas abandoned technology um, after a certain point. Meanwhile, they had some people who wanted to keep using technology, so they just augmented all of their bodies. Um, and so they kind of become the primary antagonist of the uh, Knuckles comics. Uh, so 
Uh, when did they release Dark Brotherhood? I think it was the mid to late 2000s, something like that. 2008. Uh, but for those of you who don't know about it, um, at one point, Sega collaborated with BioWare to make a uh, Sonic RPG for um, the, D the Nintendo DS. Uh, it was called Sonic Chronicles, the... the uh, the Dark Brotherhood. Oh, no, I got it mixed up. So Dark Brotherhood is from uh, Bioware. In the Knuckles comics, they're called the Dark Legion. Uh, that that was my mistake. Um, okay, yeah, Sonic Chronicles the Dark Brotherhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so um, Penders had actually already had one lawsuit with Archie at this point because he left around issue 160 because... Um, and the reason for that that he gave for that was that he was tired of Sega not providing story, story materials when they um, would uh, ask them to adapt the games. And... They wanted them to adapt Shadow the Hedgehog. They didn't send them story materials again. Penders just went, fuck this, I quit. Um, and in his defense, I wouldn't want to adapt Shadow the Hedgehog either. Um, but <laughs> it's just like, that was the that was the final line. I am not adapting Shadow the Hedgehog. I'm out. But um, Hedgehogs with guns. But before Penders left, he took it upon himself to copyright every single it, it, original character that he put in the comic. And this totaled 170 characters or possibly over that, uh, if I'm right. Um, and he was not supposed to do that. The freelance agreements that Sega and Archie had for all of their writers and artists is that any um, original characters were supposed to be the property of uh, Archie and Sega. But you got to understand, Ken Penders is a big fan of Jack Kirby, who was a really big proponent of creators' rights and, uh, you know, creators owning the rights to their characters. And as a comic artist myself, that is laudable. I do believe that uh, creators should have the right, have, uh, you know, the rights to the, what they create. However, Penders was working on someone else's license, which is a very big difference. And so... In my personal opinion, when you work for someone else's license, yeah, you agree to those terms. And by the way, a bunch of the original characters that he created just look like, you know, Sonic, but with a new hat. Like, that's the only difference. <laughs> well, I do have some questions because I know, like, after this lawsuit, he retained the rights to these characters, right? Well, it's just it's more it's more that that they couldn't come to an agreement. So so the timeline of events with uh, the Dark Brotherhood game mm -hmm. is that Archie sued uh, Penders that went nowhere. They settled that out of court. Um, then the Dark Brotherhood comes out, and Penders notices that the Dark Brotherhood villains kind of start to ape his Dark Legion characters a little bit. And uh, I can see his point, but on the other hand, both sets of villains just look like evil guys in black cloaks. Like, that's kind of, you know, like, the villains like that are a dime a dozen. So I find it kind of ridiculous that you tried to copyright up evil guy in a black cloak. You know what I mean? You might as well copyright Emperor, yeah. Emperor Palpatine under that logic. And so, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm assuming here that, that when Pender sued Archie and Sega, that Sega just, they got Sega and Archie got the legal team together and they're like, we're going to challenge you on this lawsuit, right? Well, here's the funny part is that, uh, so it turns out Archie's contracts were literally not worth the paper that they were printed on because apparently there was a huge, this is the story I heard. There was a huge fire at the Archie offices and that burnt up a bunch of their um, freelance contracts that they had with a bunch of people and they hadn't backed them up digitally and they didn't have any Xeroxes in it. So Ken Penders takes them to court and Archie couldn't reproduce any of the paperwork and Penders wasn't going to hand over his copies of it because then that would support their point. <laughs> That's so something. Yeah. And for those who have never played the Dark Brotherhood, and most people have not, but um, it ends on a cliffhanger 
Um, the game, I mean. And uh, they never revisited it. Um, and some people felt that it was uh, because of the lawsuit. Apparently, that is not 100% true. The lawsuit was a factor, but the even bigger factor was just the fact that the game didn't sell very well. It sold a million copies, which seems like it should be good, but this is when the Nintendo DS sold like 300 units worldwide. So you sell 1 million copies of something, you can't exactly call that a success. <laughs> Right. And Bioware was that was right around the time Bioware got acquired by Microsoft, too. If I'm I think it I, I'm actually not sure. No, not I Microsoft. Don't. No, EA. EA. Uh, oh, yeah. So like all of a sudden, I'm sure Sorry. Sega didn't want to deal with, you know, somebody who's, you know, uh, owned by another publisher at this point. Right. Especially when you, you consider it was a Nintendo DS game. And well, I mean, the Nintendo DS was was kind of a different territory for EA. But I know EA snubbed their knows at Nintendo quite a bit around this time period. I mean, that's a different story for another time, but that could really lead into why another reason there was no Dark Brotherhood follow-up. I mean, the Sega's relations with EA, EA's relationship with Nintendo, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, and um, so that was uh, that was something that kind of came up um, when Penders left. But um, even in spite of that, and even in spite of the fact that, going back to the comic, they killed Robotnik. And, that, and they killed Robotnik in issue 50. And I have to make this absolutely clear. Th that version of Robotnik never comes back. He is dead. He is D-E-A-D. Dead. And yeah. so... And... Uh, and so this is kind of around the time when I stopped reading originally. And I'm going to be honest, when I started rereading it, I um, all of a sudden remembered why. Because this is when the comic really started, like, dithering. This was around the time that uh, the Sega Saturn had uh, not really taken off. The Dreamcast hadn't come out yet. and But they still had to keep the comic going. So they're like, oh, shit, uh, we still have to keep publishing this. And we just killed our main villain. And there's no games for us to adapt. What do we do now? So... This is where Carl Bowler's cousin comes in because I have not talked about him very much. I actually really dig Carl Bowler's as a writer. Um, him and Penders, after after Knuckles got canceled, um, they sent Penders back over to uh, write for Sonic. Um, but Penders would only treat stuff that he wrote as canon. So stuff that other writers did, he would just ignore or he would just like try to write around somehow. So him and po him and Bowler's were kind of like butting heads for about a hundred issues before both of them left the title. But one That's thing that I like about I know, right? And so, um, but what I like about Carl Bowlers is that it seems like he's the first guy to come along to look at elements that either they used or were about to use in the animated show, and he actually tried to make use of them and try to incorporate them in the story. Like, I'm, and I'm not going to say that it's all successful, but he's the first guy where he goes, hey, why aren't we using this? Like, we should try to see if we can make uh, something out of this. Um, and it wasn't all successful. This wasn't, uh, like, for... They kill Robotnik in issue 50, and so there's, like, a couple of issues where they're just trying to figure out what the hell they do next. Like, two issues later, um, they have Sonic fall into another dimension. So this is seriously happens. This is issue 52. I remember this very clearly in my head. Sonic is out running in the middle of a Green Hill Zone, and he sees a glowing zoot suit, like something that Jim Carrey would wear in the mask. And he follows it into a cave, and he falls into a Casablanca dimension, where all of a sudden he is in a black and white Maltese Falcon Casablanca universe where he's in the middle of a classy nightclub and he has to find some object that some dame has like hired him to find. And the dame is of course, uh, princess Sally in a slinky dress and high heels. I think this is when they really started ramping up the sexualizing of princess Sally. Cause she tries to play like the femme fatale in a, in a gangster movie. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> completely appropriate, completely healthy. And like everything that I've said before, they just spit Sonic right back out at the end of the story and nobody ever mentions it again. So like those are the kind of stories you got for about like 10 issues. 
But this is when Bowlers introduces a villain that the Sat AM cartoon was uh, going to use, and that is Ixus Nagus. Sounds like a Final Fantasy 15 protagonist. He's not far off um, because Ixus Nagus is a straight up wizard. He was the former uh, wizard for King Acorn. Um, who, and he also got banished to the Zone of Silence. Him and King, King Acorn hooked up in the Zone of Silence. And uh, King Acorn was worried that he was going to die or go mad. And so it turns out Ixus Nagus is responsible for that crystallization thing that I told you about a little while back. The Lysiification. Yeah. Yeah, the Lysiification. He's like, uh, if I turn you into a Lysie, you'll survive the Zone of Silence until you get back home. And, you know, that's not the best explanation, but it's what it is. By the way, I have to go over the origin of Ixus Nagus that they have in the comics. So it turns out Ixus Nagus is a combination of three different wizards. Because if you look at Ixus Nagus, he has a really long beard, he has horns, and he has a claw on one hand. So the explanation that they come up with is that he is made up of three different wizards who belong to the Order of Nagus. One of them was a bat, one of them was a rhino, and one of them was a lobster. And they tried to have this magical contest where they tried to race to the sun. But the entire time that they're doing this, they're all trying to screw each other over and uh, betray one another. It's like a fantasy version of the wacky races. And when they get to the sun, they somehow fall into the sun and then end up fusing into the same character. So this is how it goes in the comic. They f they fall into the sun, and then the next page goes to um, uh, goes to uh, the Palace of Acorns. They go to King Acorn's court, and Ixus Nagus just knocks on the door, and he says, Hi, I'm Ixus Nagus. I'm a new being that was just created, and I would like to be your royal uh, wizard. Uh, is that okay with you guys? Like, <laughs> I was literally born yesterday, and I would like to be your wizard. <laughs> this is a Sonic the Hedgehog comic. This is a Sonic the Hedgehog comic. <laughs> oh, also, I should mention at this point, because they kind of do a small uh, arc where they kind of go like, well, Robotnik is gone. What do we do now? And all of the roboticized um, people like uh, have gotten their memories back, but they haven't figured out how to turn them back into normal animals yet. Um, and Sonic manages to find his parents. He manages to find his roboticized parents. And this is, this is a thing that Pender's introduced and I think perfectly exemplifies how much he dislikes Sonic. He reveals that Sonic is not his real name. Oh, Ogilvy. Ogilvy. Yeah, no, no, no. Ogilvy Maurice Hedgehog. He reveals that Maurice. He reveals that Maurice is Sonic's middle name, but uh, his dad is like, "Oh, actually, that's his middle name. His real first name is Dad. Just call me Sonic." He, and Penders later confirmed that he was going to name him Ogilvy. Yeah. Oh, oh no. <laughs> I didn't even know Ogilvy was a real name until then. I'm I like, thought, did you make did you make that up? <laughs> I thought that was a a, a chocolate drink. Yeah, just drink your drink your Ogilvy, son of a bitch. Anyway, um, so you get Ixus, so you get Ixus Nagus, and so he basically said, "Okay, I'll, um, King Acorn, I'll give you this crystallization thing that will help you survive as long as you make me king, like uh, if we ever escape the Zone of Silence." And he's like, "Well, I've got no choice, so okay, I'll do it." And so Ixus Nagus finally escapes, and. Okay, so I know King Acorn promised that, but I think he would be well within his rights to like not take up Ixus Nagus on that contract. Like I think that I think that was you know, I know that like bad like working contracts are kind of like, you know, a theme of this uh, episode right here, but I think like, you know, right. yeah, you don't have it in writing. You, like you have a verbal agreement which is not like, you know, uh, which is is not legally binding in the Kingdom of Acorns. Like Ixus, I think we need to ask you to leave. And so they defeat him. They cure, they cure King Max. He's back to normal finally. And uh but Ixus has escaped and he's going to be the new big threat. So since they don't really know what to do with the story at this point, what they do is they just take Sonic and Tails and they just throw them on their biplane and they just go searching around the world to try to see if they can um, 
uh, find and defeat Ixus Nagus. This is what they do until they um, get to the Sonic Adventure stories. Um, and you kind of get have them go into different locations and you get like more ripoffs. And in fact, um, it has one character that I think uh, is one of the biggest ripoffs of all. His name is Monkey Khan. And he is a uh, magical monkey with cybernetic enhancements. And there's no other way to say this. He's Sun Wukong from... Uh, Journey to the West in a Sonic comic. Like, he looks exactly like Sung Wukong. He's a monkey. I mean, why he not? has, like, he has the staff. He flies on a cloud like he's Goku, who was inspired by Sun Wukong. Like, the only difference is that he's a cyborg, but all of his cybernetics are internal, so you don't see any robot parts. So he just looks like a normal monkey on the outside. Um, so we've come full circle, is essentially what you're saying. Because, yeah, Sonic Sonic's inspired by Goku, who was inspired by Sun Wukong, and now Sun Wukong's in the, in the comics. And I've gone cross-eyed. And uh, they fight a villain, a humanoid villain named the Iron Queen, who looks like she fell out of a Sentai show. So it feels like Sonic just fell into a Sentai plot while he was trying to find this lobster rhino bat wizard. Like, you, it, are you starting to see why I stopped reading around this time? Because I had no idea yeah. what the hell was going on anymore. I'm I'm completely fucking lost. I'm yeah. Like, and it gets even worse. And it gets even worse. Um, well, not worse necessarily, but it, it, it just wasn't that good. So um, one of the concepts that Carl Bowlers ran with was this character named um, Nate Morgan, who um, uh, they intended to introduce in the uh, animated series. So Nate Morgan, he looks like a uh, tiny old black man. He's about the same height as Sonic. So I think that would put him around like, you know, three feet tall, four feet tall or something. They're never consistent with how tall Sonic is. He's just never as tall as a human. Um, and, and he's an old black guy, wears a lab coat. Um, and it turns out he is the inventor of the, uh, power rings. Okay. He, all the power rings that you collect all over Sonic world, he is the inventor of them. And I need to make this clear. Nate Morgan is not a bad character, but he's an underutilized character because anytime he shows up, he's just like this fountain of exposition. You see how he was involved in Robotnik, how he was involved with the King of Acorns, how he was involved in the power rings. But the thing is, and this is kind of difficult to talk about, but it doesn't really change anything. It doesn't change, you know, how they use the power rings or why they use the power rings. It's just like, yeah, we have this guy who invented them apparently. And you're like, okay, great. You know, just, and what does that change? Um, so let me get this straight. It sounds like he is Morgan Freeman for the Sonic universe. Morgan Freeman, it, Morgan Freeman, if he was a little person and also a scientist. <laughs> okay. Okay. Because yeah, you need I know. that. You need that. And and also to um, Carl Bowler's credit, he kills off Nate Morgan in uh, issue 100 because um, uh, like he uh, because he kind of realized uh, this is the exact quote that I have. I freely admit that Nate Morgan had turned into a walking plot device. About a year ago, I confided with one of the other writers that Nate was one of my least favorite characters in the book. And perhaps because of that, I haven't used him to the best of my ability. I definitely have plans to uh, get rid of him. And sadly, my original plan won't be implemented, but those are the breaks. And so in contrast to Penders, Carl Bowler's introduced this element, kind of realized it wasn't working out and he got rid of it as soon as he could. Um, well, that's good. So that that's good. It, and like I said, Nate Morgan's not a bad character. He's just kind of, he doesn't really add anything. And also he kind of becomes redundant because you have Robotnik, who's a tech head. You have Rotor the Walrus, who's supposed to be the tech guy for the Freedom Fighters. You have Tails, who's also a tech head. And now you have another tech head. So he kind of, you know, becomes the all-purpose smart guy, even though we have three or four all-purpose smart guys at this point. And why is he a human? Uh, why indeed? They never accurately answer that. Um, 
Although I do have to, well, he they established that he was one of the overlanders. So he started out with as the overlander scientist. He worked with Robotnik with all of the down with the furries people. And then for whatever reason, he left that. And then he worked for the King of Acorns. He's just, apparently he's just been involved in everything, but not in a way that's like important or interesting to the story. It gets really weird. But then we're getting to the point where after, after issue 75, they bring Robotnik back, and I actually really like how they do this. So you remember I mentioned uh, the Robotnik from the alternate dimension like a couple of issues back? The one who has the carbon fiber body? So he comes over to our dimension, and uh, what I like, this is his, is that uh, they destroy his body over the course of the story, but it turns out that he's been in our dimension long enough where he has several backup bodies that he can upload his brain to via, like, cloud or whatever. And so they go into, like, the secret basement where he has all of his spare bodies, and he uploads his body to one that looks exactly like Eggman from Sonic Adventure. So this is how they introduce Eggman into the story. Technically speaking, Robotnik and Eggman are two different characters. <laughs> In the comics. In the comics. But what I like is that um, the Eggman version, he says the reason that he came over to his to our dimension is that he had won everything to the point where he just got bored and he nuked Sonic and all of his friends. He just killed them all with a nuclear bomb. He won, right? Nice and he said, I, I discovered, and he goes, you know what? I discovered victory was kind of boring. So I decided to go over to another dimension and do it all over again. He decided to new game plus this shit just, to, just because he could. <laughs> Damn. I like and that. And what I, I like that, and even better, he recruits Snively again, even though Snively betrayed him and killed, like, the previous version. And Snively asks him point blank, you know, why are you working with me again? You know I'm probably going to betray you down the line, right? And he goes, oh, I know. And if you manage to succeed, I'll deserve it. But, you know, up uh, like, uh, until then, it kind of keeps me on my toes and keeps me sharp. Like, the fact that his minions might betray him is part of the game to him. <laughs> Like, this version of Eggman is just doing it for fun, and I think that's actually a really refreshing villain motivation. I, I Yeah, I, I do want to see more of that, where you don't want to achieve total victory because it means you're going to become bored. The only reason you're not winning is because you're holding yourself back. I, I think that's a really interesting villain motif. Well, and plus, around this time, Bowler's kind of started introducing the idea that, like, Sonic doesn't really have a purpose now that Eggman is gone. Like, that's partly why he goes off in the adventure to find Ixus Nagus, because he goes, I've spent my entire life, like, fighting to, like, you know, defeat Robotnik and free everybody, and now they have been. Like, what's my purpose? And so, all of a sudden, this new version of Robotnik comes back, and they both kind of regard each other like we kind of need each other. There's like a Batman and Joker kind of vibe. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah neither yeah. one, neither one of them wants to have complete victory over one another because frankly, they're having too much fun. And you can kind of, you know, argue the morals behind that. But um, it's at least, it's at least a dynamic. It's more than what we've gotten so far from Sonic as a character. I was just saying dynamics like that always make the story a little bit more interesting because now, now there's a foil now. And that's always been the interesting thing about, you know, Batman and Joker, more so for Jokers. You know, always know that Joker needs Batman. That's why Joker never really ever takes out Batman. Well, and plus, and plus in the case of the Joker, I saw, I, it, uh, I saw a thing recently where somebody on Twitter, I, maybe it's in the comics, maybe it's not, maybe it was just a fan theory, but the, but basically implied not with Batman, but uh, Joker knows that Clark Kent is Superman. Like he just took one look at Clark Kent. Nobody else looks at Clark Kent like this in the story. And he took, and he's like, oh, that's fucking Superman. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care about Superman's like, you know, like a true identity, which I think is so interesting. He's like, yeah. one, I fight Batman. And two, I'm never going to use that because you're Superman and you'd kill me if I tried to take you on. So, like, that's not interesting to the Joker. 
Yeah. And we can Fighting this other guy is interesting to me. rabbit hole, too. And, yeah, again, another episode for another time. And that would be interesting to get into because I think you know a lot more about that uh, compared to me as well. So that would be a yeah. nice learning experience. For, for, those, for those of you listening, um, and I don't think I've ever mentioned this on the show before, I actually have a bachelor's degree in comics. I am literally a certified nerd. Um, and it hangs proudly in my bathroom. But, uh, anyway, getting back to Sonic. Um so this is around issue 75. They bring in uh, Eggman again. And then we get the other thing that Ken Penders loves to introduce, which is love triangles. You get so many freaking love triangles. And that wouldn't be so bad, except Ken Penders also had an, uh, a tendency to write endless cliffhangers. So they would never be resolved. It's like the X-Files. It just, it, you go like, is Sally going to hook up with this guy or hook up with this guy? Find out in the next issue. And... It just went on and on and on like that. So around this time is when they introduce Mina Mongoose, who just shows up out of nowhere. She's just like a background character that all of a sudden has been pushed to the foreground. It's like when Lost introduced Nikki and Paolo. You're like, wait a minute, who are these two and why are they taking up story time? Um, and apparently that that came from editorial mandate. Uh, that was a, that was an editor's idea to introduce a new possible love interest for Sonic. And this is the one thing that Penders and Bowlers agreed on is that neither one of them really liked writing for Mina Mongoose. Um, and I, and I usually bristle at, uh, using the term Mary Sue, cause I think it's a really loaded topic. But one of the things that they establish about Mina is that she is as fast as Sonic. And my immediate first question was, okay, if you're as fast as Sonic, how come you haven't helped out until now? <laughs> yeah. Where have you been? Like, Where have you yeah. been? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, and so, but what? And, and, so, and so I'm counting this on my fingers. So you have Sonic, you have Sally, you have Mina. So that's three people. You have Joffrey, who is still in the mix, unfortunately. Like, And all Joffrey does, Penders wants us to sympathize with Joffrey and li like him, but Joffrey never does anything likable. He just insults Sonic and tries to hook up with Sally and tries to, you know, like... Uh, do things that the king orders him to. Like, Joffrey's basically a cop. Like, like just get away from my girl, narc. So, but, so you have four <laughs> people right there. And I haven't mentioned this until now, but Penders also tried to get uh, Knuckles involved in the, um, in the love story with Sally because they established that um, they knew each other when they were children and they just conveniently didn't mention it until now. So now we have like, I th I th instead of a love triangle, I think we have like a love pentagon because that's five people right there. Um, yeah. Um, and by the way, I should mention that the uh, final game that uh, was adapted in the comics before the Dreamcast um, uh, stopped, uh, before they stopped manufacturing it. Thankfully, it was Sonic Adventure 2 because they also did a brief story for Sonic Shuffle. And so I could only what? imagine if so I could only imagine it, it was just a brief side story. It was just like a little promotional thing to kind of tell you about the game. It didn't have anything to do with the main canon, but they okay. narrowly avoided Sonic Shuffle being the last game that they adapted before the Dreamcast like stopped being manufactured. Like why just would like, you even just a, I I because it was the newest game to promote. Like it, you know, it doesn't matter I, if Sonic Shuffle it. was good or not. Yeah, it's it's the new Sonic game, everybody. Like we're making a we're making a story based off of a fucking party game. Everyone, yay! Yeah, yeah. It's, I'm just I, I'm just happy that Sonic Adventure Two was where they ended it before the Dreamcast manufactured. Like they would adapt the other games after this, but like they narrowly avoided Sonic Shuffle being the last one before the Dreamcast stopped. Like, could you imagine if Sonic Shuffle had been the last one? That'd be worse than dying of syphilis. I swear. Um, oh, God. <laughs> oh God. But um, I don't I'm know. It'd be worse than dying of syphilis, but it'd be it'd be pretty bad. 
Well, like, it, it's, I don't know if you're a fan of Peter Sellers, but his final film before he died was uh, the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu, where he played, like, uh, Fu Manchu, and he play, sings, like, a pop song at one point, and he, and he died before he could live that down. Like, I always think about that. Like, you know, what's the last thing you wrote, or what's the last, um, you know, thing that you, uh, thing that you did in your life? Oh, you know, I, I adapted Sonic Shuffle. That's what I did. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I can put a cap on my life and, you know, just say that, man, I did good. <laughs> because the people at Sonic Shuffle didn't. But, um, oh, wow. We're, get, we're, we're getting to the end of the first hundred issues, so I should probably skip ahead a little bit. And there's actually something I have not talked about very much, which is a villain that they have also had running through these stories. And his name is Mammoth, name is Mammoth Mogul. Uh, and Mammoth Mogul was a mammoth who uh, happened to be around a Chaos Emerald and it got embedded in his stomach and it gave him magic powers and it gave him mortality. So the best way to sum it up if you read comic books is that Mammoth Mogul is Vandal Savage mixed with the Kingpin because he's immortal and he wears a he's a giant character who wears a white suit like the Kingpin does from Daredevil. Um, <laughs> and his whole and his whole goal is that he wants to get the Sword of Acorns, which, you know, is connected to the source of all. And, uh, you know, he wants to use that to take over the world. And I'm bringing this up because uh, Ken Penderis just likes to have vague magical destinies for everybody who is not Sonic. Like, Sally has a vague magical destiny. Knuckles has a vague magical destiny. Like, and uh, Mammoth Mogul is not meant to go up against Sonic. He's meant to go up against Tails, who gets his own vague magical destiny. Uh, Tails has an uncle, you know how Tails' real name is Miles Prower, which I've never completely gotten, but that's his real name, according to Sega, Miles Prower. Um, they Miles live in Prower. Miles Prower, yeah. Um, which makes no sense, they live in Japan, they should have called him Kilometer or something like that, but, um, I digress. Yeah, Kilo Prower. Um, so they establish they have an uncle named Merlin Prower. His, his, he has an uncle named Straight Up Merlin. He's an old fox. This is another thing of Ken Penders ripping off D&D. And he is a wizard and a charlatan who has magic powers. And he said that there is a prophecy about tales. And they keep building this up in the background for the first hundred issues. And you know what the prophecy is? Is that he'll uh, gather Chaos Emeralds and he'll defeat Mammoth Mogul. That, that's it. He, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the whole prophecy. And what I love... Uh, he does it. He does it in issue 96. But what sticks out to me is that Tails, when he goes super, when he gets like the Chaos Emeralds and the rings and he goes super like how Sonic does, um, he gets a cape. And uh, it, like and so they call him Turbo Tails because everybody gets their own name. And uh, Turbo Tails gets a cape and he shows up, up in front of Sonic and Knuckles and he goes, you might not recognize me in this different form. And I'm like, Tails, all you did was put on a cape like we can recognize you just fine. Like... <laughs> And the and the thing that I thought when I read that is that why doesn't Sonic why doesn't Sonic get a cape when he goes super? <clears throat> because he's Goku. Because he's yeah, because he's Goku. But all I kept thinking was is like if you offered Sonic a cape when he goes super, he would 100% wear a cape. He's like, "Wait, we could get capes this whole time? Like I want a cape. Like why why didn't anybody tell me there were capes?" <laughs> but and so that's a way where just like, you know, Penders just has an idea that just like completely uh, fizzles out. Like, you know, just, oh, we have this big important thing, which is to defeat the bad guy. Wow. Did you really think of that all by yourself? Um, yeah, sometimes and simplicity I, is for the best. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead a little bit to um, when Penders and Bowlers uh, left the title because they both left around uh, the same time. But one thing I do have to mention, and it's the last thing I'll mention about Penders, is that Penders is not exactly great at writing uh, female characters. And I know that's, um, you know, a very broad statement in comic books where, like, you know, you have a bunch of writers who were not good at writing women for the longest time. But um, 
it's especially um, noticeable because, like, basically none of his female characters have any agency. Like, they are all, like, mansplained to for, like, on a constant basis. Like, in fact, when King Acorn comes back, he's kind of a dick because uh, all he's... Because Sally has been the one in charge up until this point. She's the one who's been keeping this rebellion going in his absence. And his first concern when he comes back is that he wants to marry off Sally. He wants to betroth her and, uh, you know, like, see if they can start producing heirs for the kingdom. And his first idea is that he wants to pair Sally off with Antoine, which she just, like, rejects completely out of hand. She's like, I am not marrying Antoine. And the reason that King Acorn decides that uh, decides on Antoine is because apparently the source of all told him that. And so Sally is like, I don't care if, you, like, your glowing pantheistic god told me to marry Antoine. That is not fucking happening. <laughs> Well, at least that's good. I mean, at least they did that. But for the most part, it sounds like Sally's just being utilized as relationship bait. Everybody, everybody, everybody just argues over Sally instead of letting her be an independent character on unto herself. Like I mentioned the love yeah. Pentagon. Another annoying thing that Penders does is that anytime two male characters end up in the same room, they start scuffling with each other, even if they have no reason to fight with one another. Like Knuckles gets introduced really early on in like issue 13. But for the first like half a dozen appearances where he meets Sonic is that they are literally fighting each other within minutes and then they get back to the plot and then they part as friends and then they meet again and then they start fighting and they get to the plot and they part as friends and they meet again and then they start fighting like and it just goes on and on and on like that and anytime Sonic meets Joffrey he starts arguing with him it just gets really fucking old after a while you know what I mean and it's like can everybody stop arguing over this woman and just let her be leave leave her be just let her be her own damn self like for for god's sake Penders also wrote this thing called the Girls Rule Special, which, like, as soon as I found out about this, like, my blood ran cold for a minute. I'm like, oh, God. I'm like, oh, God, this is not going to end well. Because he discovered um, that Sonic actually had, like, a really huge uh, female fan base. And so he thought, like, all right. He pitched an idea to um, uh, Archie where, like, uh, he would just do a special that would focus only on the female characters in the title. And... That is a laudable idea. I'm not putting that idea down. But all of the stories were written by Penders. They had five different stories with uh, five different female characters. And all of them were written by a man in a title that did not have a single female writer in its entire, like, publication history. So already you're going in on a disadvantage, right? <clears throat> right. Yeah. And so they had five different stories. Um, I'm only going to mention uh, two of them. Um, one of them is Bunny. That's when she gets the new sexy legs. And... You know, on the one hand, like that kind of talks about Bunny's character and how she relates to, um, you know, her robot limbs and everything else. But the big empowering thing for the female character in the story is that she looks sexier at the end of it. And I don't know if that's exactly the female representation you want. I mean, that's just like an industry wide kind of problem that was very, very pervasive back then. Uh, more so than this now. I mean, it's still pervasive now, but it's, it's just not having female voices when addressing female concerns. I mean, that's, yeah, that's just something that. That's going to take some time for it to go away, unfortunately, I think. But it's yeah, getting better. I'm still it, not it, there yet. It's it's better than it was when uh, they originally published this comic. Let me say that. But uh, the other yes. thing I wanted to focus on with the Girls Rule special was uh, Sally's story, because this one actually became slightly infamous. So Sally is trying to figure out who she is, her place in the world, like everything else now that her father is back and her family is back and everything else. And so she decides to bathe in the source of all and try to see if she can find this out. And this story kind of became unfortunate for a couple of implications for a simple reason. So we talked about how Sally is basically naked with her design. So she takes off her boots and she bathes in this thing. So she is literally naked for this entire story. Like, and 
they they drew her just like, you know, with like a very like, you know, voluptuous figure the entire time. And I think even Archie kind of realized that maybe they went too far with this because when they did reprints, they put her vest back on like when she bathes in the source of all. So she's bathing with a vest, but no boots on at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've seen I've seen some of the illustrations of her, too. And as we alluded to earlier, it, it gets it gets to that position where she gets more and more of a human figure rather than an animal uh, like just just like the not I don't want to say necessarily animal, but just more of the the very Cherubian animal perspective that they're trying to go with the anthropomorphic kind of view. So I, I can understand why that would be risky even for Archie and for them to be like we we probably went a little too far with a naked fifteen year old with breasts and a womanly figure, a, a, a naked fifteen year old anthropomorphic squirrel, and yes. And even ignoring that part, like Sally kind of travels, you know, she kind of has this vision where she like talks to her father and talks to other like male relatives. And the basic message is, oh, yeah, your father is a dick, but he has a reason for being a dick. You know, he's doing this for your well-being and your best interest at heart, which is another Penders thing that comes up a lot, which is like very distant father figures who won't just like explain anything to you. But they keep on acting like, you know, they have your best interests at heart. Um, of course, they that's do. a big that's a big thing that happens in Knuckles story where like his father. His father basically abandoned him to fend on his own to become prepped to become the guardian of the Master Emerald on Agel Island. And meanwhile, his father is just like watching from afar. He has this like secret base that has monitors all over the uh, island and he's watching Knuckles like trying to fight off evil and trying to do all this other stuff. And his and meanwhile, his father is there, and Knuckles doesn't know where his father is, doesn't know anything else. And by the way, it leads to a really amusing editor's note where um so Knuckles is talking to Sally and he goes like, it's okay, Sally. I know what it's like to lose your father. Like, you know, uh, I've, I know that pain very well. And right in the corner, it has a little caption box that says Knuckles doesn't actually know that his father is alive. Read issue something or other. I'm like, way to kill the tension. Thanks, asshole. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Because <laughs> they established this in the, in the Knuckles solo series, but not in the uh, mainline Sonic series. So they just kind of had to have a little J <sighs> little BT dub spoiler like right there. So you knew what was going on. <laughs> read the audience like uh <laughs> but basically so of the two main female characters that we have you have one who gets sexualized even more and then the other one just has her be like mansplained by her like male relatives before she like leaves the source of all and she's like i'm gonna find my own path i'm like you were kind of doing that already we didn't need like the big glowing pool of whatever to kind of tell you that um i think it was just an excuse to get her naked and wet just an excuse to get her naked and wet uh, with gold stuff. So it, not quite a golden shower, but it was a golden tub. So it was in the ballpark. But um, yes, it was a golden smothering, golden smothering. But um, skipping ahead. So we get to issue 160. Bowlers and Penders okay. both independently decide that they've had enough and they decide to move on. And this is when we bring on Ian Flynn. And I actually won't talk about Ian Flynn as much. Um, but uh, Ian Flynn he was 23 years old when he got hired to write for uh, Archie. He was a young kid. He was just submitting stories unsolicited, trying to see if he could write for his favorite comic because he was a fan of Sonic since he was a kid and he was a fan of the comics for a really long time. And so they actually hired him and they had him working on backstories when Bowlers and Penders quit. And they kind of just come up to him and they're just like, hey, um, our writers quit. Would you mind taking over on the title? So 23 years old, he gets thrown in the cockpit and he is the first official head writer that um, the Archie comics have had in a while. Because basically they didn't have anybody else at the time. Like he was it. Like um, it, it kind of reminds me of just like Roger Corman. It's just like we need the best and you're the closest we got and you'll work cheap. So just get in there. And um. 
But here's what I love. So everything that I've talked about was like really frustrating and really just kind of all over the place. And, you know, I wasn't sure what to think about it. And I kind of stopped reading and I kept coming back and forth and I didn't know what was going on. Ian Flynn turned all of that around. Like, and what I love is that once he takes over, like all of a sudden everything that Penders was dithering about and everything Bowlers was dithering about, he got to work and he started making sense of it. Like the closest metaphor that I can think of is imagine if Christopher Nolan wrote a direct sequel to Batman and Robin and it actually made sense. <laughs> that would be a, probably a pretty good movie. Yeah. And he brings on Tracy Yardley, who I said was like a really consistent artist. Like everybody, you know, looks like how they're supposed to. They look like a Sonic character, like Bunny and Sally are way less sexualized at this point. Um, and it and his whole first year is uh, cleaning house. And uh, he is just getting rid of everything that was just holding back the title at that point, which means his first order of business was getting rid of a bunch of the deus ex machinas. He gets rid of the sort of acorns. He gets rid of mammoth mogul and he gets rid of the source of all. And he gets rid of the um, ancient walkers because they just weren't adding anything to the story. And I'm like, did he get rid yes. of all the echidnas, too? Because there's a million of them. Well, uh, that, that, that'll come up, that'll come up like a little bit later once we get to the end of the run, but it's like, it's okay. like a night, it's like night and day reading, um, you know, just, uh, Ian Flynn's, uh, run. And what I like about it is that, um, King Acorn kind of becomes an antagonistic figure after he comes back. Um, and so what they do is that they, uh, pass it over, not to Sally. Sally does not rule the, uh, kingdom, but, uh, before the end of the hundred issues, they introduce her, uh, Elias, who had been like lost on Angel Island for a long time, he gets introduced in the uh, Knuckles comics and he just shows up out of nowhere with no announcement in the uh, Sonic comics. So you're like, wait a minute, Sally had a brother this whole time and we didn't know? Like, who the hell is this guy? Um, and what, what's weird about it is that Elias is her older brother, which you think would be harder to cover up. You could say he's the younger brother. That would be easier. Like Sally's mom goes missing. She gives birth to Elias like while she's on the run from Robotnik. Like um, you'd think that would make more sense. But uh, I don't know. He's the, he's the older brother. He takes over the kingdom when King Acorn is like too sick to do it. And one of the things I love is that they turn it, it they establish a parliament after that. Like uh, the king has a seat on, uh, or King Elias has a seat on it, but everybody starts like having a vote and it becomes like way more democratic. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I actually like this. This is actually a really good twist. <laughs> um, and they even start making use, more use of uh, Monkey Kong and uh, the Iron Queen, which uh, I didn't think I would ever see them again. They kind of get insufferable when they show up. But they have a whole plot with the Iron Queen where Snively teams up with her and they actually fall in love and he betrays Eggman for a while and he's just like all lovey-dovey with his Sentai villain queen while they're trying to take down Sonic and his friends. And it's not... You wouldn't think you would want this from a Sonic comic, but it ends up becoming like surprisingly entertaining. <laughs> So this is this is at what around uh, like episode one? I mean, not episode. I Ian Flynn. Uh, Ian Flynn wrote everything from issue one sixty until issue, issue two ninety, and um, I should probably talk, skip ahead and kind of talk about what happens with the um, two hundred and fiftieth issue. Although I will say that um, another thing that uh, he cut back on is that he got rid of a bunch of the. Uh, he got rid of a bunch of the love triangles. He gets rid of Minnie Mongoose. He gets rid of some other stuff. And that's good. One thing I also like is that he establishes that. Because Sonic and Sally are broken up at this point, but um, it, because they have, I should probably mention it, they they have this thing called the slap, which is where Sonic and Sally have this big blow up argument around, I want to say issue 120, Sally slaps Sonic in the face and they run off crying. Fans like have really hated that moment, like um, because it was just like so melodramatic and overdone um, and the writer and artist have kind of apologized for it. 
Uh, but kind of um, Ian Flynn's kind of solution is that he goes, Sonic and Sally are kind of fine with each other. They're friends for now. And he does a thing that I think very few writers uh, do where he establishes they will be fine without one another if they're not a couple. But at the same time, there's still some chemistry. There's some real fondness and that flame hasn't completely gone out yet. And I go, you know what? That is probably the best solution. So you get to around issue 250 and because of the issues with, because of the stuff with the lawsuit that I was talking about, Sagan Archie finally threw their hands up and they gave a mandate to Ian Flynn and all of the other people working on it that said, we have to get rid of every single character that Ken Penders has uh, had in the comic. Um, so we can only have characters from the Sat AM series which, uh, you know, Sega owns the rights to fully. And uh, we basically need to do a continuity reboot. Um, and this is where I think Ian Flynn actually shined because he actually works better within limit, better within limitations than Penders did. So what he did is that he sets up Robotnik or, or Eggman, sorry, with another uh, doomsday device. And it's going to be called the Genesis Wave, which I think is uh, a really cool uh, callback. And so Robotnik, they don't stop him in time. They activate the Genesis Wave. And uh, it basically wipes out a bunch of the continuity that was going on at that time. So once they wake up after the Genesis wave is over, everybody has a slightly different appearance, a slightly different characterization. Um, but it's only the Sat AM characters. Um, and they've gotten rid, rid of basically everything that uh, Penders had done up until that point. Although what I, what I liked about it is that just before that goes into uh, motion, it takes the original designs of the Sat AM characters and it puts them in the plot of the very first Sonic the Hedgehog game for the Sega Genesis. It has them like go to Green Hill Zone, it has them go to Brain Scrap Zone, and like Sonic and Sally and Antoine and Tails and everybody team up. And I think this is important because they never did a proper adaptation of that. Like they they actually kind of started way back in um, the early days with like Sonic uh, Sonic Two because that was the latest game. And so I thought, like, uh -huh. dude, this title is going to be wrapping up soon, and I think this is actually, like, a really good callback. Um, I, I, I was, like, it kind of felt like things came full circle before they get to this new paradigm, right? And so the, the Genesis wave wears off. Everybody slowly gets their memories back, but they're in a new world where um, everything is slightly different. And this was how the comic went on until issue 290 when Sega basically decided, okay, Archie has completely screwed the pooch because, again, Penders was dragging out the lawsuit. And so they just canceled the title outright, and uh, they took it over to IDW, um, where Sonic Comics are uh, published uh, now. And so, and because Sega doesn't really like to focus on um, old stuff, uh, they don't like to focus on their old iterations of Sonic, uh, whatever they might be. Um, as far as I know, there is no plans to uh, reprint the issues um, or publish them even digitally online. I'm going to admit it, uh, rereading all of this, because I reread re the entire series before this podcast, I had to do it th through piracy, unfortunately. Like, uh, when I sent a link to uh, Chris for the um, for the uh, Sally Moon issue, it was, like, loaded with ads, and I apologize for that. Oh, my God. I, oh, I was bombarded. I couldn't even read it. But the story... I, I eventually could, but... It just kept popping up with all this shit. I thought my phone was going to just die. But the story but the story has a happy ending because they moved everything over to IDW, but they brought Ian Flynn and they brought Tracy Yardley along. So the two people who knew what they were doing, like uh, Sega was like, we want to keep you on. So like, can you just write for Sonic just with these different characters in this setting? And Ian Flynn is like, yeah, of course I can. And he still writes the Sonic comics to this day. <laughs> nice. Like they, they rebooted it too, didn't they? Like they yeah. In 2017 I, I, and yeah. Yeah. 
because the thing is, is that before Sega took the license away from Archie, they also had like really stronger mandates. Like, uh, and some of them made sense. Some of them didn't like, uh, Sonic had to be on every cover, which is one thing that makes sense or, but then you have other ones like Sonic cannot get overly emotional or, um, whatever that might mean, or no characters can be in a steady relationship. Like those are new mandates that they have on the IDW version that's going on right now. Hmm. Yeah. Or, that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Or also, um, no Sega creator created character can die or have character development that is not pre-approved by Sega. Like that sort of thing. Like basically everything got so screwed up with the lawsuit that they kind of just like went, okay, we need to have like tighter control over it. Like they finally started giving a shit. It only took them 20 years. <laughs> like, oh yeah, we have a comic book and they're doing things to our IP. Maybe we should like pay attention to that. Yeah. That might be smart. Yeah. And what's weird is that, you know, kind of like a moving towards an ending at this point, like as crazy as all as this is, and I'm sure like describing it secondhand to you has been like a friggin' trip. Like there's a part of me that just kind of loves that. Oh, I'm lost, man. Yeah. There's something that I love um, about like the fact that something this crazy exists, that it could get this dense and have like creators like with this like strong of a vision, just adapting like Sonic the fucking hedgehog. You know what I mean? That they could have that strong of feelings about it. <laughs> I think that, and I think there's any character that's really emblematic of if you just come at it from a video game perspective, that is Sonic the Hedgehog. Like you're talking about a character that's just been all over the place now for the past what now, like a uh, uh, 31, 32 years. We're coming up on the 30th like, anniversary, and by the way, we're recording this episode yeah. after they announced that um, they're replacing the voice cast for Sonic. So that's even that feels kind of bittersweet. Yeah, because they have the Netflix uh, show coming up soon. I think. Oh wow! I need if they have a Netflix show coming up, I need to watch that. But yeah, I mean, if there's any character that is just all over the place, it's Sonic, and I think that's. I mean, it's appropriate that the comic is because certainly the video games have been. So yeah, Sonic is that character. He's a hundred percent that character, and yet through all of it, he still finds a way to survive as a brand, and that is. That's special because when you think about it, a lot of these other characters haven't survived. We, we mentioned Spyro earlier. Uh, Crash Bandicoot's kind of hanging on by a thread is just nostalgia. That's just having any sort of life into it. Mario is just he's Mario. Mario he will outlast really us all. <laughs> of course he will. He's, he's the Mickey Mouse of video games. But somehow Sonic, with all the ups and downs and apparently in, in the comic book realm, too, he just seems to survive. For whatever reason it is. And I think that means you, it's it's a special character for whatever generations, multi-generations appreciate Sonic for different reasons. And it's nuts, especially when you're talking about you're having 15 year old squirrels getting naked in a pool in a comic book. And that comic book somehow managed to survive beyond that. Uh, not to mention all the weird games that were going on in the Xbox 360 Wii era, PS3 era. And Sonic is still here and people still play it. So I think this is just it's it's, it's kind of like a fascinating parallel when you bring it all together. I actually had something about Sally since you brought that up, but kind of kind of tripping on your point. I remember when um, uh, the movie came out last year and people had like such strong yeah. opinions about like Sonic's design and that quickly got corrected, thank God. But um, 
or as quickly as you can correct it with a movie CGI. But I, some people were kind of disappointed because the story was so basic. It just had Sonic and it had Robotnik and they were fighting each other and that was it. And I kind of thought, okay, yeah, but you got to establish that baseline for like a mainstream, you know, movie audience. It's like you need to set up the things that are like the most typically recognizably Sonic. And, you know, he runs he yes. runs fast and he fights an evil scientist named Robotnik like that. That is Sonic. That is Sonic at his like very core. Meanwhile, you have side adaptations like this that incorporate so many different influences and so many different characters and so many different types of stories. Like, I'm happy they didn't adapt the comics because they're dense as shit and that would turn off a mainstream audience. Like, I'm interested in it because I love comics history, you know. Absolutely. But you throw this in front of, I'm just throwing this in front of you and you're a gamer and you're just like completely overwhelmed by it. It's way too much. It's way too much. Although um, there was thing, one thing about Ian Flynn's run um, that I'm really happy that he did uh, concerning Princess Sally. He turned Joffrey into a villain. And, <laughs> and I was so happy about that because what they reveal is that is that Joffrey has been working for Ixus Nagus secretly this entire time because Ixus Nagus was promised the throne and Jeffrey's duty is to like, you know, go with whoever has the throne and he's deigned that Ixus Nagus is supposed to be the true king. And so I'm like, you fucking dick. I always knew that you were a self-serving asshole. Like that was one of the most satisfying things that I've had where you just have this insufferable character for 200 issues and you finally turn them into a bad guy because they felt like a bad guy the entire time. They're a piece of shit and they're getting their just desserts. Trying to have sex with a 15 year old does not make you the hero of the story. <sighs> Unless you're in Japan. <laughs> oh God, we could be getting into card captors for all we, all we know at this point. <laughs> With that being said, I think it's time to wrap this up. I agree. Uh, thank you, Seamus, so much for, for stopping by and talking Sonic comics. There's a lot here. It's really interesting. I, I I know I didn't talk a lot during this because I really didn't have much to say. I tried to get in where I could. But obviously, like the, the amount of knowledge that you have about this and just how interesting these stories are uh, with a character that's so beloved in the gaming community, they, these are things that, like, are just so interesting little tidbits that I think people in the gaming community would really appreciate. So thank you so much for stopping by and explaining this uh, for our for our patrons on our uh, RH Gaiden podcast, man. I, I really appreciate it. Um, this was kind of like a really out there idea. I actually pitched this to Chris, so I'm happy that he kind of indulged me and just kind of went on with it. I honestly started this just because, um, you know, I was trying to find ways to keep myself entertained in quarantine. So I kind of feel like, you know, seeing Ian Flynn turn it around and kind of, you know, just bring closure to the story. I felt like I got closure on a very ridiculous, but also like very specific bit of my childhood. Um, I'll see all of you guys in the Sailor Moon episode. And before I leave, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, a great resource for this was Thanks Ken Penders. You can find it on Tumblr at thankskenpenders.tumblr.com. The author is named Bobby Schroeder. Uh, she's done a ton of really hard work. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, look her up. By the way, don't look up Ken Penders works uh, after Sonic. It's uh, it's terrifying. Oh no, that's where we should really end it because Ken Penders did regain uh, the rights to a bunch of his characters in the Knuckles comic. He has been trying to get that uh, off the ground independently for the last uh, five or ten years or so and um, I'm sure we'll be seeing that whenever Half-Life 3 comes out. <laughs> yeah, just, just know it, it looks bad. But in any case, <laughs> until next time, play with your gotta go fast joysticks. Bye everybody. Thank you. Bye bye.